0: It is fantastic to see you all this morning. As uh, I said at the start, my name is Richard. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, happy Mother's Day, of course. We always, yeah. Always make a point of noting uh, Mother's Day here at Gateway. But we also do just want to be sensitive about this and recognize that, just as might be true at Christmas or New Year, that um, Mother's Day is a joyful day for some, but not for everybody. Uh, and so we want to make a point of recognizing and honoring all the women amongst us, and also to say thank you to you all so much for all the ways in which you bring such blessing to the church community. We um, we believe very deeply in church as family. So every woman who is a part of Gateway is a spiritual mother or sister and or daughter of mine and to the rest of the church. So to all the women at Gateway, we honor you and hope that you feel that love and respect and honor this morning as I'm speaking, but also always as well. I'm actually going to take this opportunity this morning to talk about two women in the Bible, um, or at least one woman and one girl, and how they encounter Jesus in such a Powerful and yet beautiful and tender and merciful way. So, we're going to get straight into that and then we're going to pick out some observations about Jesus and about the world and about society and how to live in response to all of that. So, you might want to grab a church Bible for this. There's a stash over there and some up on the tables. Do feel free to take a moment just to do that. And uh, the words will also come up on the screen, but you might find it helpful just to have it open in front of you or open your Bible reading app or whatever you use. And um, my friend Ruth and my daughter Hannah are going to come and read this morning's passage from us. We're going to be in Mark 5, verse 21 to 43. So if I could have Ruth and Hannah come and join me. You're going first, aren't you? Yeah, there you go. Great. Do you want to come stand here? There you
1: go. The scripture reading is from Mark, chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. The one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him.
2: A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realised the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you? His disciple answered. And yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her,
1: and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitakum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Thank
0: you guys. Thank you so much ladies, that's great. So um, what we've got here, of course, is Jesus, who has just returned. He's been on the other side of the lake, and um, he steps off the boat, and instantly he's surrounded by a crowd. It's interesting in the Greek translation of how these uh, words in the story are um, unpacked. The crowd is described as being like thorns that crowd out a flower. It was a tightly packed, intensely suffocating noisy, large crowd of people and they're all kind of huddled up and pressed up against Jesus. And into this arrives one of the most important men in the town, a man called Jairus, as Ruth read. And it said that uh, Jairus was the leader of the synagogue. That was a really big job and everyone in town would have known this guy and he would have been respected by the people. He was a very important man and you can kind of almost imagine this crowd opening up as Jairus. Approaches and Jairus gets to Jesus, and he looks at him, and then he falls to his knees, and he starts to plead. Jesus, my little daughter, my 12-year-old girl is dying. Please will you come and help? Come with me and touch her, and I believe she'll live. So off they all go, Jesus, Jairus, and the crowd. Now you'll notice I got um, Hannah and Ruth to read different sections of the story, and that's because this morning, one of the things I want to do is highlight a, a particular style of writing that Mark, whose gospel we've just read, employs. And uh, this is this is actually what happens: is Mark often starts a story, and then he inserts a whole other story, and then he comes back and finishes the first story. It's uh, affectionately sometimes known as a Markan sandwich. I quite like that. With the first and the last part of the story are like the bread, and then this middle story is the filling. And this middle part, the filling, um, is often the part that explains the whole story. And when Mark does this, he does it a number of times in his gospel, he's usually trying to kind of almost overemphasize a very important theme that he wants us to. As readers to get. This is usually a theme that's right at the heart of what he's trying to tell us about Jesus and about the kingdom of God that Jesus came to announce and inaugurate and invite people into. So Jesus is off to Jairus' house. The crowd is pressing into him. And then it says, en route, a woman kind of wriggles into the crowd. And this woman, it says, had been bleeding for 12 years. I think it's reasonable to suggest, and most commentators think, that what's going on here is something like a uterine hemorrhage, ongoing debilitating menstrual bleeding. And she is in super bad shape for a number of reasons. I think it doesn't take for me to say that, firstly, bleeding for 12 years is just not going to be fun and would have probably had all sorts of other health implications for her. Uh, Maybe she was anemic. A a doctor friend of mine said that um, she would probably have been in chronic pain, she may have been infertile, she would have probably been fatigued, and she may have had hair loss or breathlessness, things that would have made her daily chores really difficult for her. So she was in really bad shape physically. In any event, it says that this woman had spent literally everything she had trying to find a cure, which you'd understand, and yet no doctor had been able to heal her, so she would have been in financial poverty as well. I find this story just incredibly touching, and I feel such compassion towards this woman, but that's not actually even the worst of it. Women were really second-class citizens in that culture. That's, That's just the way the ancient world was. And so she naturally wouldn't have been afforded access, the benefits of access to society at the best of times. But at this particular point in history, there were also very strict religious laws about menstruation or about any kind of bodily discharge for men and women, such that for the entire duration of a woman's period, she was to be regarded as unclean. And if you were unclean, then anything you touched equally became unclean. Anything you sat on, anything you lay on, that would have been regarded as unclean, which would have meant that if you were this woman, you wouldn't have been allowed to go and worship with others, you wouldn't have been allowed to touch anybody else, you may have been separated from your husband and your family. In fact, she wouldn't even have been allowed to be in public without making everyone else aware that she was unclean. It would have been degrading and isolating and exhausting And her personal condition would have probably left her feeling quite deathly. So what we've got here is a woman who is literally untouchable. In that sense, you might even say she's unloved. She's solitary for sure. She's physically and emotionally impoverished. And she definitely should not have been in that crowd as someone unclean. Socially speaking, she's the lowest of the low. Everything about her is undesirable and unclean. And from what I've already said, in that culture you can see that uncleanness was transmissible. If you were unclean and you touched someone, they became unclean and untouchable. So she does what she really should not have done, but she's desperate. She says, maybe if I can just get close enough to this Jesus and even just touch his clothes, even the hem of his garments, then I will be healed. She's actually demonstrating incredible bravery and rock-solid faith. She's taking a real risk on Jesus here. And Jesus, it says, kind of, he realizes that something's happened. It says that power somehow went out from him. And he turns around the crowd and he says, who is that? And, of course, the disciples say, I mean, look at the size of the crowd. Why would you even ask that? How would we know? But the woman realizes that something has happened to her. And so she comes forward and she falls at his feet, and it says that she's trembling with fear and probably awe as she tells him what has happened in front of this entire crowd. And at that point, what should actually have happened in this culture is that she gets severely reprimanded, and Jesus should be declared unclean and have to go through all the social and religious rituals to become purified again. But he doesn't. One of the, one of the hallmarks of how Jesus operated in that culture and how he works in our lives, is that he doesn't become unclean. You can't make Jesus unclean with your stuff. Rather, he is the one who comes and makes your unclean stuff clean. He says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. It's so tender. In the uh, New Living Translation Bible, I love how they translate it, It's just slightly different. It says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Your suffering is over. And then as he's speaking to her, some people arrive from Jairus' house, and they say to Jairus, who's been standing there this whole time and and waiting for Jesus to hurry up and come and heal his daughter, and they say, Jairus, your girl has died. Tell the master not to bother coming anymore there's no point imagine being Jairus in that moment he's desperate and he's rushed to get to Jesus and he's rushing to get him to his house and this unclean woman comes and slows the whole thing down and then he's told us too late don't bother your daughter's died and immediately Jesus looks at him and he says don't be afraid just believe And then he dismisses the crowd, maybe out of respect to Jairus, and he continues onwards as he passes another kind of wailing crowd outside Jairus' house, and he says, what's all this commotion? The girl isn't dead. She only sleeps. And, of course, the mourners start to laugh at him, and they mock him. This is a a common response to Jesus. Throughout history, people have laughed at Jesus and mocked him and those who love him. It's not uncommon Until they come face to face with their great need for him. Or they encounter his power and his love in their lives in some way. And that's what we're about to see in this story as well. And so Jesus sends the crowd away. And he takes his disciples and Jairus and Mrs. Jairus. And they go upstairs to the little girl's bedroom. And he takes her by the hand. And he says, Talitokumi, little girl, I say to you, get up. And she does. And they are obviously astonished by this. And I imagine, speaking as a father myself, celebratory, this daughter who's not only raised from the dead, but she's, she's well. And Jesus just calmly restores the normal patterns of life. He says, just get her some food. And then he says, don't speak to anybody else about this. And he leaves. We can sometimes read a passage of scripture like this and fail to recognize the, what's actually happening, the deep, power that is happening in the stretch of a few hours of just one of jesus's working days it's a remarkable day in the life of jesus and i I believe it tells us so much about who he is and how to live in response to this so i want to pick out some things which i'm hoping will help us from this story let's talk about five things the first thing is he's a friend of sinners This is actually an accusation that is levied against Jesus by the religious leaders of the day. They were the high and mighty in society. They were the ones who decided who is clean and who is unclean and what to do about it. And then enter scene, Jesus, who doesn't behave like them. He doesn't eat in the best restaurants in town and sit at the best seats at the table. He doesn't preside over what people eat and do with their money. But he sees it as his priority to go to the sick and the poor and the lowly. And the Pharisees look at this and they mock him and they say, look at him, he's a friend of sinners. But Jesus' attitude towards this is that it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick that do. And therefore, where you'll find me is with the poor of spirit, the downcast, the unclean of society. And even in the case of Jairus, who is himself a religious leader, you'll find him with the humble of spirit, with the person who says, I can't do this myself, Jesus, I have great need of you. You may hear the story and be thinking, which one of those characters do I best associate with? Are you sick or poor or lowly? Do you recognize in your great humility, like Jairus, your great need for the saving work of this humble king? If any of those things describe you, there's, there's good news for you. He's, he's near to you. And everything in this story tells us that he's not only near, he's a friend of the unclean. He makes a beeline for the needy. He runs to the sound of the cannon fire. He is attracted to your place of pain. And he sees through your uncleanness, and he's able and willing and very pleased to call you son, daughter, and bring health and wholeness and salvation to you. There is good news today for every one of us imperfect, unclean people. He is a friend of sinners. The second thing, I do enjoy a good equation, is human desperation plus Jesus equals good news. In the economy of God, it's the potent mix of our human desperation, our pain, our struggle, our biography, our sin, our rebellion, our isolation, our uncleanness, our disease, our debt, our guilt, our anger, our trauma, our emotional health struggle, our grief, our shame, our anxiety, our depression, our hopelessness, things that we've done, things that have been done to you. Please hear me, if any of these things describe you right now, it's those very desperate human issues plus a recognition that Jesus is who he says he is that is good news for us today. Please don't leave here today without asking me or someone else about this. If this story, if this Mark and Sandwich tells us anything at all about Jesus, and I think this is why Mark emphasizes this with these two stories, it's that in our place Of suffering and our recognition of our great need for Him, that Jesus is moved to compassion. That phrase, moved to compassion, it reoccurs throughout the Gospels. And it means that not only does He see your plight and desperation, but that as we call out to Him and invite Him near, He is moved to do something about it. The highest in society comes crying to help for him for his dying daughter. The lowest in society, the most unpresentable, comes to him desperate for help. And in both cases, he is moved to compassion. And he brings healing to one and life to another. That's what he's like. That's what he does. If you're in bad shape today, there is good news. Jesus is Lord. And he sees you, and he knows you, and he loves you, and he loves to meet you where you're at and to pronounce healing and life over you. It doesn't matter if you're the highest and most presentable or the lowest and the most unclean. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the great leveler of all humanity, and it's good news for you. Even if all you can muster up is enough to reach through the crowd and to cling to the hem of his garment right now. That's all it took for this unclean woman. I've got nothing else to give. I shouldn't be here. All I can do is reach out with what little faith I have and take hold of him in some way. That kind of deep sense of askingness in her heart, that's what Jesus recognizes as faith. And it's to her faith that he responds. All it takes for you to draw near to him today is to ask him into your situation, to metaphorically reach out and take hold of him. He is moved to compassion. It's good news for the brokenhearted. The third thing, don't be afraid. Just believe. Just before we get to the story in Mark 5, there's a story in Mark 4 of how Jesus calms a storm. You might know the story Uh, Jesus is in a boat with the disciples on on a lake, and the wind picks up, and the waves start to crash into the boat, and the boat starts to fill up with water, and the disciples are naturally all panicking. Where on earth is Jesus in all of this? And then they realize he's downstairs having a kip. And so they, they go and wake him, and they say, help! And he says, don't be afraid. Where's your faith? And then he calmly commands the wind to still. He completely masters the natural elements. And then we get to our story, and this time someone's deathly ill, and someone else is already dead. And again those words, this time to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. I want to just pause on that phrase for a moment. The instruction to not be afraid is in the Bible in one phrasing or another around 350 times. It's obviously a pretty important encouragement for the Christian life. Almost always what we see in Scripture when humans encounter angels or they encounter the Lord directly, The first response is fear, and that's not surprising. If God is who he says he is, and is as awesome and powerful and holy and majestic as Scripture describes him, then when we come face to face with him, we'll join in the experience of all the other characters in Scripture who fall face down in front of him. I'm sure of that. I often laugh when people say, when I see Jesus for the first time, I've got a list of questions I want answered. Trust me, the first thing that happens will not be your list of questions, it'll be you falling face down in awe and wonder at this amazing king. But whenever the Lord encounters someone, usually his immediate instruction is this, do not fear. And there's two very good reasons for that, firstly, he's good, he loves you, he knows what you need, and he only ever does good to those he loves, so you can trust him, and secondly. Gloriously, he's able to deal with any threat you're facing. Mm. And that's what this story is all about. One outcast woman facing total rejection and scorn, and one person who's already slipped into the grave. And his response? Don't be afraid. Mm. Just believe. For my money, quite aside from the spiritual value of that statement, this is about the most important psychological response to anything that you're facing right now. Don't be afraid, just believe. Because the one in whom you believe is good, is near to you, and can with a single word, calm storms, has mastery over nature, heals illnesses, can restore you to society, and most significantly of all, restore life where all you can see is death. That's why Jesus refers to the dead girl as sleeping. She's clearly dead, but for Jesus to say that she's asleep points to the fact that death does not have the final word if you're asleep it naturally implies that you can awake which is what happens with a girl little girl I say to you stand up arise whatever your situation whatever whatever any situation really no matter how stormy or diseased or lifeless it seems do not be afraid just believe as a Christian of nearly 25 years myself, without a doubt, the most psychologically significant words I have ever heard, let alone what it means for my soul, are these words from John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. That's freed me from all sorts of distress and despair. God is good. He knows what you need. He's near. He heals. He comforts. And he restores life. Do not fear, just believe. The fourth point, which is obvious if you think about it, is how to eat an elephant. Okay, we're not really gonna talk about elephants, but you may have heard that Christmas cracker joke. How do you eat an elephant? Does anyone know the answer to that question? How do you eat an elephant? Really, no one. One bite at a time, well done, Georgie, excellent. There are some situations that life sometimes throws up, and either through desperate exhaustion or the sheer scale of it, we just don't know how to bring it to God or how to pray for it or even what to do about it. I'll give you some examples. You or someone in your family become critically ill. How do you pray for that? How do you find peace in that situation? Where do you start to attack that problem in prayer? Or perhaps you've seen a major injustice or inequality in the world. Whenever I'm in Cape Town and see the 1.1 million squatters living in tin shacks in the Kyalichta township, just down the road from the affluent townships—sorry, the affluent suburbs—and I don't know what to do and I don't know how to pray. Or a few years back, I had—I'd uh, I'd watched some stuff and read some stuff about uh, Indian street orphans living in railway tracks, three, four-year-old boys and girls begging for every meal. That really affected me. Where do you start to make a difference and know how to pray about that? Or maybe like me, you've been observing the crisis in the Ukraine and not knowing what to do or how to pray about that. One of the things I've observed about our prayer lives, certainly this is true for me sometimes, is that in those moments, the reason we don't know how to pray is the very reason we should pray. It's precisely because we don't know how to fix the problem that we sometimes stop Uh, we stop short of approaching God about it, sometimes we can be a little bit guilty in our prayer life of being a bit like we're advising God or consulting for God, looking to develop the right solution ourselves and then asking God to somehow come and bless and respond to our great wisdom. I've caught myself doing it, thinking about Kailitsha. Lord, if you can just raise up the right amount of money and the right builders and maybe build some blocks of flats here and then we can slowly start to move some people out of the township and then the right politician come up and rinse and repeat, I'm sure that will fix the problem. Lord, did you cause that to happen? Jairus in the story was not an uneducated man. It wouldn't have been like he hadn't tried other things, other people first to come and try and heal his daughter. And the lady with the issue of bleeding, listen again to her story. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, many educated men, and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she just grew worse. So facing the scale of the insurmountable, Jairus simply falls on his knees and cries out to Jesus for help. And the lady, she didn't even have that. She just reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garments. No advice or consultation offered. No, Jesus, if you just arrange for a uterine artery embolization, I'm sure I'll get better. One on their knees, one just reaching out, both in desperation and with nothing at all to offer. Both recognizing that their only hope for breakthrough is that Jesus is Lord. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. How do you pray for an end to war in the Ukraine? One prayer at a time. What do you do when you bring no wise thoughts to those prayers? You fall on your knees, and you reach through the clamor of the world, and you stretch out your hand to the Savior. What words do you use? Jesus, help. Where do you find faith in those moments? In this. Do not fear. Just believe. Jesus is Lord desperation, I don't want to give you the wrong idea, is not some kind of magical key that unlocks uh, God to move in situations. Let me tell you, God is already moving in situations. But despair is so often where we most notice him moving. Lord, I do pray that you would bring an end to the war in the Ukraine. I do pray that you'd bring an end to injustice in the world. Lord, please heal cancers and depressions and infirmity in every life. Lord, thank you that you are at work in every one of those situations. We believe that you are Lord. Yes, we do. Yeah. My final point is Jesus and women. It's Mother's Day, and uh, I thought uh, for a while about how to kind of note that. And I just want to take a moment to talk to the women of the church, whether or not you're a mother this morning is quite irrelevant for what I want to say. And I want to be as sensitive as I know how to, because clearly I'm a middle-aged man. But I also happen to be a huge advocate for responsible protective, paternalistic, compassionate, mature, secure masculinity as well. I think Jesus actually exemplifies those things in the story. And I recognize that we also live in an age where masculinity has come under fire for abuses and injustices towards women in so many ways. And so I'm not here this morning to jump on that bandwagon. I actually think that the way to solve toxic masculinity is by establishing solid and secure masculinity in spades. And not to kind of somehow deconstruct it or eliminate it. I'm advocating for the opposite. I'd really give my life to calling out a healthy, robust, respectful, and secure masculinity in men. And I stand by those things fully. But I also do equally lament the difficulties that women have faced in the world. And I, in many ways, still do. uh, In ways that I won't always be able to fully appreciate. This story tells of just one of those struggles. And sometimes, even in the church, Christianity can get a bit of a bad rap for being too male-dominated or not respectful enough of the role of women. And frankly, I think this becomes most problematic in settings where men don't stand up and behave like mature fathers and brothers and behave more like selfish, insecure infants. And we definitely don't want that for the men here at Gateway. But just look again what is happening in the story, firstly. It's on his way to the highest in society that Jesus turns and stops and looks around to the lowest in society. And what does he call her? Daughter. You're mine. I've got you. I love you. I see you. And I'm here to serve you in spite of the cultural challenges of the crowd. What a great model of secure, fatherly masculinity we see in Jesus. And what a wonderful model of honor towards this outcast woman. And then to the little girl lying there dead talita kumi that's a phrase from the aramaic dialect that jesus would have spoken little girl get up that that word talita is closely related to the aramaic word for lamb and uh, there's no kind of consensus about this but many scholars actually think that what jesus is trying to convey here is more like little lamb the shepherd is here it's going to be okay such tenderness and safety. I speak myself as a father of teenage age girls. I, I do lament the fact that manhood is under fire, and it's not easy for girls today. So much of what is wrong in the world is that we've had to increasingly defend girls from masculine abuses. Insecure, immature, immoral masculinity but not Jesus. He's the epitome of what it means to demonstrate protective, secure, safe, honoring, paternal care towards women. Men, we should really take note, he honors women. He honors men and he honors women. And I wanna stand with him on this issue and so should we all. And so I just wanna take a moment to honor you women of Gateway this morning. And I'm sure I speak on behalf of every man who here believes that Jesus is Lord and that his ways are worth emulating. So I want to say to the woman who's endured hardship in her health or her emotions and faithfully stayed the course of loving Jesus, to the woman who's endured abuse in her life and still manages to believe the best and to do what's right, to the woman who has poured herself out to love and bless her children or her grandchildren or my children or the children of Gateway or me, to the woman who has Faithfully served and loved her husband over many years, to the woman who has loved and lost her husband or never had a husband, to the single woman who's lived for Jesus and his mission in the world, to the woman who has struggled financially but chosen to put others ahead of her at the mealtime, to the women who have built and strengthened this community, whether publicly and visibly or quietly and prayerfully. Behind the scenes, to the women who have reached through the clamor and the crowd daily and prayed for this church or for her family or for the world or for God's kingdom to come, to the women in the church who, as we saw earlier on in that video from Haley, who serve in the domestic violence refuge, to the women who live in the domestic violence refuge, to the woman who is navigating battles and hardships in her home, in her workplace, in her family, with her children, and still refusing not to lose heart and to keep trusting Jesus for another day for his grace. To the older women who've been prayer warriors in this community, to the young women who love and care for one another and hold each other accountable and on track for Jesus, to the young women and the girls who faithfully stand up and bear witness to Jesus in schools and universities in a culture so hostile to what we believe. For every act of generous mothering and sistering and daughtering towards me and towards the whole church community, I want to say thank you to you. And we want to honor you today. And I believe that Jesus sees you and says to you, daughter, you're my daughter. Your faith has healed you. I give you all that I am and I invite you into my family. He says, little girl, young woman, older woman, I see you. I love you. Now stand up, Talita, call me. Be strengthened and find life in me. I think it would probably be appropriate at this point just to applaud the woman of Gateway. But the... The greatest applause in our life, of course, belongs to Jesus, who has taken that which is unclean, us, and through his work on the cross, declares us clean. To Jesus, who through his work on the cross, draws us close to him and calls us son, daughter. To Jesus, who is healing and blessing and declaring peace and freedom for captives and making all things new, even to the point of redefining the terms of death. The application of everything I've said this morning is this, and they come straight from the words in the story, and they apply to every one of us here. Whatever your situation, and whoever you are, don't be afraid. Just believe. Your faith has set you free and your suffering in Jesus and through what he's done for you is over. He says, I have overcome all things. And for those who cling to me, who reach out and hold on to me, even if only by your fingertips and onto the hem of my garment, if that's all you've got, I say to you, illness, suffering, death, these things are temporary and passing. Little lamb, stand up. The shepherd is here. Today you find yourself in the presence and the power and the embrace of King Jesus. Why don't we pray? why don't you come and pray for us
1: oh savior i thank you that we come to you today and you see us and there is power in your name to heal infirmities to bind up broken hearts and to set the captive free We reach out to you, we stretch out our hands this morning and say, Lord, help us to not be afraid, help us to believe, give us faith now, and Jesus be glorified in our lives. We ask this
2: in your name, amen.